morning, folks. I'm glad you're here today. Thanks so much for coming and worshiping Jesus with us this morning. And uh, I want to give you an update on a couple things that are happening in our church before we jump into the, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. Our Easter service is coming up in two weeks, just so you know. I know you can figure that out by looking at the calendar. Uh, but let me tell you why I wanted to get your, your mind kind of in that, that focus. We talk about reaching our city for Christ, and I want you to know, as you think about it, the, this is the one time of year... Uh, even more so than Christmas, where people are actually looking for a place to go to church. Not only are they receptive or open to you inviting them uh, to come to a service, but a lot of people are thinking, where are we going to go to church? And those are the kind of people that we're trying to reach, the ones that don't have a church already. And so one of the things that we've done um, as a church family, trying to equip you, prepare you for that, is you can go on Facebook and invite your friends. We've got a, a group page. You can go search for that and find that out for our Easter service. We've got some invite cards if you go out to the guest services kiosk today on your way out. If you want to just hand those to somebody, uh, that would be an appropriate way uh, to be able to invite somebody. Hopefully you saw our announcement this morning. And um, we want to just give you an opportunity to be able to do that because people are receptive. And what's going to end up happening for our Easter service, uh, set your expectations. And so you know, as like last year, Lord willing, we're going to have an outdoor service. And so we'll have plenty of space and uh, more seats than normal. And I'm going to preach a message. We're going to take a break from Philippians. We've been going through Philippians right now. And I'm going to preach a message from Ephesians chapter 2, so if you want to read that ahead of time, you can. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to talk about the resurrection and what the resurrection means for us today. It's going to be a simple gospel presentation, and so I'm going to give people an invitation, opportunity to respond to the gospel as well. And uh, if you have friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers that you think uh, need to hear that, I would challenge you to invite them to be a part of that. And then today, um, what you find out is after the service, when you leave, you saw the tables that were set up and aren't usually set up out there. And we're doing a volunteer expo. Those are opportunities for you to get connected in ways to serve, whatever your sweet spot is, however God's made you and the opportunities that are here and how those intersect. And uh, we're going to end the service a little bit early today, give you some time to linger out there. There's a table that's actually just for Easter Sunday, just a one-time deal. So we need more volunteers that Sunday than than normal. We're going to have more kids than we usually have. We're going to have more guests than we usually have. And um, so we want to be able to be prepared for that and uh, doing that together as a church body. And so heads up on some of those things. And if you're a guest, thanks so much for being here today and enduring me talking about things that are happening with us as a family. Uh, Maybe this is the church for you, and maybe it's not. If it's not, we'd love to help you find the right place. If it is, we'd love to get you connected as fast as we possibly can. So if you would, just in your worship program, there's a little card there. If you'd fill it out, turn it at the first-time guest kiosk before you leave today. We've got a gift for you. And uh, you can really bless us and help us out. If you tell us how you heard about us as a church, we want to invite more people because we think we've got a, a message that, that people need in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about that today in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be, talking about one of the most popular verses in the book of Philippians and verse 21. We're going to be in verses 21 through 30, Lord willing, today. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump into the scripture. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that we get to open your word this morning, and I pray you'd meet with us I pray we'd have a divine encounter with you through your revealed word. You'd reveal yourself. I pray you'd transform our minds by the renewing of our minds. I pray that you'd shape us and change us. I pray that people would make significant decisions for you today and whatever those might be based on what's going on in their lives. And I pray, God, that you would anoint my lips for those that will hear these words, um, that you'd speak words of healing and hope and change and for some confrontation. And uh, I pray you'd bind us together as a family to walk in unity as a church, uh, to proclaim your gospel through our lives and through our words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're talking about tough choices today. You think about it, life's filled with all kinds of different choices, from simple choices that you make on a regular basis. I don't know if you filled out a bracket this week, but some of us learned this week we're not very good at making simple choices. It didn't take me very long to figure that out. I don't know what teams you picked, and uh, I know you might cheer for it. Do you pick with your head? Do you pick with your heart? And there's all kinds of different ways that we pick these teams. I was looking at the brackets, and every year there's a school I didn't even know had a basketball team. 
this year, North Dakota State, the Bison, by the way, if you didn't know that. And it's interesting to me how I can pick a team to win a game based on no real knowledge, by the way. I didn't even know you had a team. And uh, the next day, all of a sudden, I'm passionate about it. Oh, man, the Bison lost. Like, what happened? It's because their choices. Our lives are tied to our choices. And you're constantly making choices. So you made choices today to come to church. Made choices what clothes to wear. Made choices whether to have breakfast, not have breakfast. You're always making choices. So you've got to decide between PC or Mac. You've got to decide. Are you going to buy a truck? Are you going to buy a car? Are you got to decide. Are you going to live in Raleigh? Are you going to live in Durham? You've got to decide. Am I going to drink a chocolate shake or a kale smoothie? It's a choice. For some of you, it's easy. For some of you, it's not so easy. And so there's different choices that we're continually making. And you know what ends up happening is some of the really tough choices shape the rest of our lives. Who are you going to marry? What job are you going to do? What's going to be your major? Different decisions that we make on a regular basis. I read a, a, an article this week. It was one of the toughest choices. I couldn't even imagine being in this young girl's situation. It was an article about a, a gal, and it almost read like a Disney story when you started reading it. She was stolen from the hospital at three days old, and it was 17 years later she was reconciled with her biological parents. Now, the way this happens in Disney is that the parents who stole her are wearing dark clothes, and you play really low music, and they never let her go outside. And so when they get arrested, everybody's like, yeah. And now she goes to a castle and wears a crown, and everybody's perfect in the biological family, right? But the reality is what ended up happening was this girl didn't know she was kidnapped. Her parents loved her, the ones that had raised her. In fact, no one else in that family except for the woman who did it knew that she was kidnapped. And so this is the only mother and father she's known, and she's now her last year in school. She's done well on her tests, and so she gets to pursue her career choice. She's got a boyfriend at this place. She's planning on going to the fairy tale dance to end the year. But all of a sudden, she finds out she's got these biological parents that she didn't even know existed. It's no fault of their own. They're total strangers. And now, right now, as we speak, she's being held in a protective custody, and she's going to have to decide. Do I go back to the only mom and dad that I've ever known who kidnapped me? Or do I go to my biological parents, who actually are complete strangers to me? Tough choice. We'll probably, most of us, never have to make that choice. But life's filled with tough choices. Today we're going to talk about one of the toughest choices you'll ever make in your life. And how you make that choice and what choice you make shapes every... In fact, it'll make some of the other choices for you. It it shapes everyone. It touches everything that we decide. And we find it in Philippians chapter 1. If you have a copy of the scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. We'll start reading in verse 21. I left off last week. Uh, Pastor Jason was preaching. Left off in verse 20. We're going to pick up in verse 21 today. If you haven't been with us, uh, the book of Philippians is actually a letter that was written to a church. He's written by a guy named Paul, and he's writing to a church that he helped start. You can read that whole story in Acts chapter 16. We covered it the first week. We won't review all of that. But he writes them at the very beginning of this letter, and he's telling them thanks because they've financially supported his ministry so he can keep preaching the gospel. And so this is really a thank you letter, like a missionary would write back to people that are supporting them. And what Paul ends up saying to them in the very beginning is the theme of the whole book. He who began a good work in you, and he's talking about God, and God begins a work in us when we place our faith in Jesus to be our Savior. So that he, the same one who began the work, will be the one that works it out. He will be faithful to complete that work. We talked about in week one how we're all a work in progress. So none of us have arrived. None of us make every decision like Jesus would make. None of us don't sin. We, We all got problems. We all got work to do. So we're all a work in progress. Encouraging, discouraging. Totally understand that. Then last week, Pastor Jason picked up the next section of the the passage. And what ends up happening is Paul gives an update in his life. Talks about his circumstances. He's in prison. But he still has joy. In fact, he's got a courageous joy. And this week what we see is where that joy came from. And we see it because of one of the toughest choices you could ever make. And that's where it comes from. 
Look at it with me. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Probably the most popular verse in the book of Philippians. We've heard it quoted before. It's bumper sticker, t-shirt type stuff. But we've got to ask ourselves if it's true of us. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then Paul goes on, kind of on this mental tangent, verses 22 to 26, like you, you see his decision-making process. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I'm going to live my life for Christ. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to leave this place, and to be with Christ, which is better by far, not even comparison. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I'm talking about the Philippian believers, this church here. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that, here's the reason, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow. You'll have overflowing joy on account of me, on account of the things that I share with you, on account of the work that Christ does in your life, and he's going to use me in the process, is what Paul's saying here. So what decision does Paul have to make? He said this message is about tough choices. He just read that passage with me, and you see that he says, I don't know, I don't know what to choose, and he's kind of bouncing around on this thing. Let me tell you something. His decision is not whether to live or to die. He doesn't get to make that choice. Paul's in prison, as you heard last week. The imprisonment that he has, you read about at the end of the book of Acts. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest. Every time, everything up until this point has pointed to the fact that he's innocent. So indications are that he'll probably be released. But he doesn't know he might be executed. We know, historically, when we look back on the situation, Paul gets released from prison. He doesn't get executed. He later gets executed, but not on this imprisonment. And so, he doesn't get to decide that. Caesar gets to decide that. So that's not his decision. So what decision are we talking about today when we talk about tough choices? It goes back to the first phrase in that popular verse. He's already made the choice that indicates how he'll respond in this situation. It's the toughest choice you can make. It's the choice of what to live for, or in his case, who to live for. And it's a choice we must all make. We've got to decide, why do we get up in the morning? We've got to decide what really matters. We've got to decide, what are we going to live our lives for, or who are we going to live our lives for? We must decide what to live for. And for Paul, he says, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I remember teaching this verse when I was a youth pastor. And uh, the way that I wanted to get uh, the students to try and figure out what they were living for is I brought in three by five cards. And I said on the card, to live is, and then I put a blank space. And then to die is, and put a blank space. Now, how you answer the first blank indicates how you answer the second blank. I'll explain that here in just a moment. But I said, you know, to live is, and it can be lots of different things, right? Like think about when you were a teenager. To live is to be famous. To live is to play sports. To live is to hang out with your friends. To live is to, what? Maybe you think you're so out for Jesus. You got to, to live is Christ. How would you fill in the blanks? For you, I'm going to ask you a different way to think about what you live for. I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. I was reading an article this week um, called X-Ray Questions, and they really ask the same question about a hundred different ways. You can probably find the article if you Google it. And I've taken some of them um, to ask you this morning. And I just want you guys, you hear these questions, to think about them in your mind, to reflect on them in your heart. I'll ask some of them so fast, you probably won't be able to reflect on them with what they, what they really deserve. Um, but that's just because of our time here. They really all ask the same thing. So how would you answer these questions? What do you love? Or hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust, and wish for? All synonyms. What do you seek, aim for, 
pursue? What are your goals, expectations? Where do you make your hopes? What do you fear? What do you worry about? What do you think you need? And here's a whole bunch of questions that use different metaphors to ask the same question. What makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What really matters to you? They're all asking that. What dreams do you long for? Around what do you organize your life? Where do you find refuge, comfort, safety, escape, pleasure, and security? Whose performance matters? Who must you please? What would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight in life? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? What do you want to get out of life? What do you pray for? How do you define victory? And how you answer those questions should lead you to the answer of, for me to live is... What did you say? What were your answers as you think through those things? Because if you ask Paul, Paul would say Christ. Paul's the guy who says, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, talking about baptism, it's, you get this phrase that you hear a lot of times when you hear it, see baptism. I've said it myself when I baptize people. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Paul says that, Romans 6, 4. Galatians chapter 2, and verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives. So then for me to live is Christ, like we see in Philippians chapter 1. It's Christ in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in this book, we'll get to my favorite passage in the book, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says all the stuff that can creep into the place of Christ in your life, all those other things, whether it's your family heritage, your reputation, your achievements, other people's affections, somebody's approval, all the different stuff that we can go after, lustful longings, Paul says, I consider all that dung. And then he says this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. What is more? I consider everything a loss. Compared to, it doesn't mean that Paul didn't love his family. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't think that the study in the scriptures was important. It doesn't mean that his family heritage was bad. He says, in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I realize how incredible he is, where satisfaction truly comes from, that he is my source of joy, he's my source of strength, he's the goal of my life. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish. English translation that I may gain Christ. It's Christ. So if I ask Paul this, what do you love? Christ. Probably loves a beautiful sunset. Probably loves to laugh. Probably loves hanging out with his friends. But his supreme love is Christ. What do you seek? Aim for? Pursue? Christ. Where do you bank your hopes, Paul? Christ. What do you fear, Paul? Christ. Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can throw you into hell. What do you think you need, Paul? Christ. What really matters to you? Christ. Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, and security? In Christ. Whose performance matters? His on the cross. Christ. Who must you please? Christ. What brings you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight? Christ. On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile, Paul? That I lived for Christ. What do you want to get out of life? Christ. I consider everything else a loss and surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So, what about you? What's your answer? Wouldn't it be great if the answer was that? For me to live is Christ. Because if you put anything else in that blank, then you can't say to die is gain, because anything else is going to be temporary. For me to live is my family. So then you know what death is? Loss. Because they're gone. 
For me to live is my reputation, a bank account, my fill in your blanks, affections, appreciation, approval. Fill them all in. To die is you lose all that stuff. It's gone. But what about when things are eternal? When the thing is Christ, when to die is gain. And what you see with Paul is because his source of joy, his reason for living, the, the sun that his planet revolves around, it's all Christ. Why is that? Because he loves Christ. And so you see that that's really the best answer because he's come to the conclusion nothing this world has to offer can possibly compete with Christ. It's like when we were in the book of Habakkuk. We were in Habakkuk just before we got into Philippians. For those of you who are just started attending our church, and we we're going same way, verse by verse through Habakkuk. And the book, I love it so raw and it's so real because Habakkuk just starts off. He's a prophet of God, but he says, God, where are you? Why aren't you listening? When I call to you, you don't answer. When I cry to you, you don't show up. And then God shows up, and God says to him a verse. It's an awesome t-shirt verse. It says, uh, I'm going to do something in your day that even if I told you about it, you wouldn't believe it. Now, you rip it out of context. It sounds really cool. If you read the context, it's pretty scary because what he's going to do is judge them, and it's really bad. And not only does Habakkuk not believe it, he doesn't like it. And so then he asks God some more questions. That song that we sang today is really based on the book of Habakkuk. And what he asks these questions, then God says the righteous will live by faith. That's central to the whole book. But the key to the whole book, really understanding it, is reading the last three verses. And so if you read the last three verses, 16, 17, 18, 19 in there, but 19 is kind of a, just an uh, ending there for instructions of worship. But 16, 17, 18 tell you basically this. Habakkuk ends up saying, if the fig tree has no figs and the grapevine has no grapes and there's no grain in the barn and there's no sheep, they all die, and the cattle all die. That's our wealth, by the way. Those are delicacies and comforts and conveniences and our food source and everything that we need. He says, I will rejoice and he doesn't say, I'll rejoice because things stink. I will rejoice because of the suffering. It's not twisted and weird. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Do you know why? Because the Lord is his source of joy. It's the same thing for Paul. That's why he can be in prison and say, you have joy, and I want you to have joy. And in fact, I want your joy to overflow. In fact, I want your joy to overflow, even though you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer the same way that I've suffered. I've been flogged and beaten and thrown in prison. The same stuff's going to happen to you, and that's a gift from God, and you should rejoice. And that sounds crazy. How can he do that? He can do that because Christ because you can't take Christ, by the way. So what you end up seeing is, if your source of joy is your pick, pick anything. If your source of joy is your bank account, and something happens to your health, that's okay, you still have your bank account. If your source of joy is your bank account and your family starts falling apart, but that's okay, because you still have your bank account. And if your source of joy is your bank account, but you some terrible tragedy, it's, it's okay. It stinks that this bad stuff's happening, but I still have my bank account. But if somebody takes away your bank account, guess what? Joy's gone. Well, no one would do that. It's so shallow. How many times, have you, have you ever watched the news? How many times you see somebody commit suicide because they lose their job? Well, what about if your source of joy is what other people think of you? Oh, that's not, I mean, people might really like that, but that's not. How many times have you seen somebody commit suicide because they're getting bullied? Is that not on the news all the time now? Because where their source of joy is. Or a boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them. Or you lost the reason for living. So it's taken away. What is your reason for living? If it's Christ, let me tell you something. No one can touch that. Romans chapter 8. Not death, not angels, not principalities, not disaster, not difficulty, not disease. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so for you to live as Christ, then guess what? No one can touch your joy. And then to die, 
You get to be with Christ. The only way you can possibly accomplish the goal that Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, it won't happen in this life. We're all a work in progress. Guess what? We're always going to be a work in progress. The only way you're going to fully know Christ and know him the way that he is is when you see him face to face. John tells us that. It's at death or when Jesus returns. So for you to live as Christ, then to die would be gain. And so how do you get to that place? Isn't that really the question? Because here's the reality. We don't come to church so we can hear, Paul's awesome. You stink. I stink. I'll tell you how I stink too. Um, let's sing a song and go home. Because isn't that what we do sometimes? Moses is so awesome, so close to Jesus. I hope we can be there someday. Here's all the inadequacies that we have and all of our failures. And uh, let's sing a song. Oh, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, see you later and go watch a basketball game. And that what we do? I mean, you can pick change the character. It's Joseph, it's Ruth, it's whoever. They did an awesome job. We do a terrible job. God, you're so good. See you later. You're lame because you've done it, right? But the, the scripture tells in verse 6, he began a good work and he's still doing the work. It wasn't just that you'd come into the kingdom. It wasn't just that you'd trust Jesus as your Savior. So how does it happen that we then grow in love for Christ? And let me give you a little secret, especially for some of you who come to church periodically. Maybe this is really, you don't pick this up. And some of you, when you come regularly, you just hear, first week's a work in progress, and the next week, Jason talked about comfort, or I mean courage connected to our joy, and then this week, you talk about tough choices, and they can seem like these individual messages. Let me tell you something, all the scriptures tied together. And so Paul's already answered this question that we're asking, how does this happen? Back in chapter 1, when he gave us the theme of the book, that he's doing a work in us, and God's going to be faithful to complete the work. And then in verses 9 through 11, maybe you remember, Paul says, not only do I pray for you, let me tell you what I pray for you. And he starts to talk to the Philippians about how he prays for them. And you know what he tells them? I pray you grow in discernment, verse 10. If you have a copy of the scripture, you can look back. We don't have that verse. So I pray that you grow in discernment, in depth of insight. I want you to know discernment. Remember, discernment is not knowing right from wrong. That's not discernment. The Bible tells you right from wrong. You don't have to decide. You don't have to pray about decisions that are right and wrong. Oh, should I sleep with this woman or should I sleep with my wife? You don't have to decide. There's no prayer necessary about, should I rob a bank or should I go to work? You go to work. I mean, that's not, you don't have to think about that. You shouldn't have to think about that. That doesn't require decision or discernment. It's a decision. It doesn't require discernment. Discernment is two really good decisions. What should I do? Job A, job B. Where should I live? Should I live in Raleigh? Should I live in Ecuador? What should, I, what should I do with this day? Because I, I could spend the whole day in prayer. I could go to work. I could go share the gospel with my neighbor. I could exercise. I could. There's lots of options. What are you going to do? That's discernment. And how do you grow in discernment? Paul told us. He told us back in verses 9 through 11. Go back to verse 9. He talked about there that you grow in love. And the more you love, the better you'll be at discerning what's best. As you grow in love, and you grow in love for, he doesn't say in the passage, you just grow in love so that love would overflow in your life. Implied, though, is you grow in love for God. And as you grow in love for God, you grow in love for God's people. As you grow in love for God's people, you grow in love for what God loves, the lost people. You grow in love for, and you just keep growing in love. And you know what you grow in love for ultimately is Christ. And so how does that happen? Well, we grow in love. We talked about this, and I don't expect you to remember every detail of the messages. I totally understand that. But I mentioned a pastor in that message from South Korea. And his name was Pastor Lee, and they'd just done a movie about him that week uh, called The Dropbox, and how the babies would get dropped off at his place, and some of them severely deformed, disabled. And you just look at it and think, how in the world does this guy care for these kids? And what you saw was God grew his capacity to love as he continued to give him opportunities. He kept growing him in love. I shared an analogy about how I love my wife more today than I loved her when we stood at the altar and committed our lives to one another. I've grown in love for her. 
And the same thing happens when you have a relationship with Christ. He begins a work in you. You start a relationship. But you don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength at that moment. You might be so thankful that he saved you. He did something for you you couldn't do. Totally understand that. But you're going to continue to grow. And how do you grow? Well, the same thing that happened with Paul. Paul didn't always live like everything else was a loss. He was living his life for his reputation. He was living his life for his religious zeal. He was living his life for his career advancement. He was living his life based on his reputation. Then he saw that the only way he could be saved was through Christ. He had an encounter with Christ. You've got to have an encounter with Christ. And continue to have encounters with Christ. How does that happen? He's waiting. No, he hasn't done it. No. He gave us his revelation. Do you know what that is? That's his revealing of himself in the scriptures. I don't just mean the book of Revelation. That counts. But from Genesis to the end, he's continually revealing himself. So as believers, we've got to be in this word. Not so we can just know more stories. Not so we can believe the right stuff. Let me tell you something. Satan knows the Bible better than me, you, all of us put together. He doesn't love Jesus. I'm not talking about information. I'm talking about you have an encounter with Christ. And the more and more you have encounters with Christ, the greater you get to know Christ and you grow in your love for Christ. And at one point, you'll end up being able to say, I love Christ. Not, not do I feel like I should get bonus points for all the stuff that I really want to do that I don't do because I'm a Christian. What ends up happening is the things that you want to do changes. You want to live for Christ. In fact, you get to the point where you'd be like, it's okay if I die for Christ. It's fine. Because then I get to be with him. Because that's what I ultimately want. Because that's the only true source of joy. And I realize in comparison to everything else this world has to offer, nothing stacks up. So I want Christ. And so then for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen because you made a decision here today. It's a relationship. He begins it, and he can begin it today. And then he continues to do a work in us. To let us realize that many of the things that we go after aren't satisfying. He allows suffering and allows difficulty into our lives. To allow us to see that we need him. That we'd turn to him. That we would trust him. He refines us. He makes us more like his son through those things. Because what really happens in the, in the church most of the time is this. Most of us um, come in and we've got ideas about Jesus. Some people, they want to say they believe in Jesus. They really are pursuing the American dream. And they believe in a Jesus that will forgive them of their sins. And help them accomplish the American dream, comfort and convenience. Those people are going to be in for a rude awakening when they stand before their judge. Because they're not saved. And I mean, let me be clear, if you don't know church vernacular, they're going to hell. Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They've created an idol, a false god, put the name Jesus on them, and they're in trouble. And their churches are filled with people like that. There are people here today that are like that. Then there are other people that are what you'd call immature, weak believers. It's not bad. Some of it's because of a time frame. Some of it's bad because you've been a Christian for 40 years and you're still there. But Paul talks about that. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it was Luke. Different people debate about this. But the book of Hebrews talks about this. It says in Hebrews, I'm tired of teaching you the elementary teachings of the scripture. We should be able to move on. Stop drinking milk. You're an adult. You shouldn't be sucking out of a bottle. That's what he's saying to them. But you are. And here's how you see this. Somebody keeps getting saved. They keep saying, I need to trust Jesus as my Savior. Now, salvation is important, the most important decision you ever make. But once he begins the work at you, now it's time to work the rest. Or somebody keeps saying, I keep needing to getting baptized in case it didn't count, in case it didn't work right, in case I wasn't really committed. No, it's a first step of obedience. It's a significant decision, but you don't keep doing that. You start growing as you keep having encounters with Christ and his word. And then as you continue to grow, you mature. He's talking about more mature Christian stuff here. This isn't t-shirt stuff, even though we put it on t-shirts, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. 
So how do you get to that place? Well, think about that second statement, crazy statement. To die is gain. We don't talk like that, except at church. In real life, somebody dies, you say, I'm sorry about your loss. You lost someone. Think about it like this. What about the person who's gone? Was it a loss for them? The answer is yes, if they're living for anything temporary. No, if they're living for Christ, that's a gain. It's like one of my favorite quotes comes from a missionary who ironically wrote it not long before he was martyred for trying to share the gospel with people. His name is Jim Elliott. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, which is anything in this world, to gain what he can't lose, which is Christ. Eternal rewards, anything that's eternal. I was reading this week through some notes. Um, We've done Secret Church as a church over the last couple years, and there's a guy, David Platt, who teaches it, and uh, he had a section on suffering. The end of this passage talks about how God gives us the gift of suffering. And I was looking through some of the things that he said. And he talked about this Romanian pastor. His name was Joseph San. And uh, when I read it, I thought, that, that guy gets it. He gets it unlike most of us get it. And some of us, because of the persecution, I think, that he's experiencing. But Joseph uh, San in Romania, uh, preaching the gospel. The gospel's going out and had been questioned many times by the Romanian police. Had been put under house arrest. And the way they do that isn't like a formal, hey, you're under house arrest. They just start watching your house all the time. And you basically can't go anywhere because they're following you everywhere. And he talked about, he'd been questioned repeatedly. He talked about one time he was being questioned by a police officer. And the police officer threatened him with death. And he said to the police officer, do you know that your greatest weapon is to kill me, but my greatest weapon is to die? And he said, because if you kill me, so I've been preaching the gospel, and my tapes are out there. That was how they were getting the message out. So my sermons are out there. If you kill me, you'll sprinkle those tapes with my blood. And he said, the people who have those tapes will then say to themselves, I need to listen to that again, because that guy really meant this stuff. He gave his life for it. The police officer sent him home that day he didn't die he said he later had another pastor friend who was being questioned same type of deal and as he was being questioned the police officer said we know the pastor's son wants to be killed he wants to be martyred for his faith and we're not foolish enough to do it pastor son i want to read you exactly his thoughts about hearing that statement from his friend he said i stopped to consider the meaning of that statement and then he's transparent he's honest he says this i remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. And I let this statement sink in. I had wasted my life in inactivity. I was afraid to serve Christ. Here's the reality. If you choose something other than Christ to live for, you are wasting your life because it won't last. So I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they wouldn't kill me. So that I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. When his life was about this life, he was scared. When his life was about Christ, he was free. Because what's the worst thing that can happen to you? You die? Now you get to be with Jesus. That's a gain. That's what Paul's saying here. Crazy talk from this world's perspective. But maturity in Christianity. So for me to live as Christ. What does that mean, Paul? Well, he tells us when he starts to go on this mental rant here in the next part of the passage. Look at it. It says, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. For me to live means this, verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body here on this earth, because he's going to live forever. But he's talking about if I live here in the body, 
This will mean fruitful labor for me because I'm going to lay my life down for Christ. I'm going to give it away for the sake of others. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I just pause there and say this. If, if you're looking for opportunity to do that, you're here on a great week because we've got our volunteer expo going on out there. You want to go overseas and serve Jesus Christ with your whole life and you want to go to Romania, go to our outreach table and tell them that you're interested in that. It doesn't commit you to going there. Begin a conversation with them. We as your sending church would love to help you do that. Some of you feel like, I'm not, I don't think I was called to Romania, but... I want to live more on mission here in Chapel Hill and in Raleigh and in Cary and Durham, wherever you live. Go to the outreach table and talk to them about that. We'd love to help you live on mission more as a church. Some of you want to help build up the believers that are here in this body of Christ. Go to some of the tables that are out there. There are various tables, hospitality team, bridge kids team, SYU. You want to invest in some teenagers about to make some significant life-changing decisions, where to go to college, who to marry, making some of those tough choices. Wouldn't it be great if they were foundationally rooted in the fact that they're living their lives for Christ and God could use you as part of that, change eternity for people? And go out there. Got opportunities. Lay your life down and labor for Christ. Paul says, that's what I do. I'm going to labor for Christ. If I live here in this body, that's what it means for me. And it's going to be fruitful. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. Hard pressed, some translations say. Like rocks closing in on you on both sides. You've heard between a rock and a hard place. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, selfishly speaking, there's no comparison. Dying would be the best option. Because then I get to go be with Jesus. And we're talking about a guy here who's been to the third heaven. Huh? Huh? I've been going to church my whole life. What are you talking about? It's a crazy cult leader up front. Well, you can read about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. I didn't make it up. Paul says, I'm going to talk about a guy. It's not myself. He seems to be painting a picture here like he doesn't want to bring himself glory, but he's telling you about an experience that he had. And he said he heard stuff he's not even allowed to talk about. It's inexpressible. You won't know it until you experience it. So this is better by far to go there. But it's more necessary for you than to remain in the body. And so it's like he's thinking through this. And what would God do here? It's not his decision really to make. But he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress. That wasn't a, the word he uses there is not a prophetic, like, I know. Like, it is going to happen. It's, it seems like, I mean, he's been found innocent everywhere else he's gone. It seems like he's probably going to stick around. He's probably going to get to go visit the Philippians, which he does get to do again in the future. So I'm convinced that I'm going to remain, and I'll continue on. Here's why. For your progress. It's for your sake that I'm staying, not for my. If it was for me, I'd go to heaven. But for your sake, I'm going to stay. And um, I'm going to do this for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now I'm going to give you some commands. We haven't read this part of the verse yet. Verse 27. It says, whatever happens, whether I get to come see you or whether I don't get to come see you, I get executed, I stay here, whatever happens, he says... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man. The picture there is like a military stand of a troop together. You stand as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed when they see you standing unified. But that you will be saved. The fact that you're facing opposition and standing in unity, being faithful in the difficulty, should be a sign to you that you just might be a Christian. And that work is done by God. And we'll stop there for right now. But verses 27 through 29, or verses 27 through 30 actually, are all one sentence in Greek. One long sentence. And so you can correct Paul's grammar if you'd like to later. 
But what ends up happening too is it really only has one main verb. The main verb is for us a phrase, but it's one word in Greek. It's where we, you go to the word conduct. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy is all one word in Greek. That's the heart of what he's talking about there. What he's telling them is this. You must conduct your... If you're going to say that your life is to live for Christ, which he makes the assumption the Philippians will choose that. If you're going to live for Christ, you're a true believer, and God's going to work in you. He's going to get to the place where your life is all about Christ. Then live in a worthy manner of the gospel. The object being the gospel. Live your lives in a manner worthy. Walk worthy. Some translations you'll see. Walk worthy of the gospel. Live a life for the gospel. So what does that look like? Well, that word, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, um, very literally translated, the, the core, the root of that word is the word polis, where we get metropolis. You've heard that word before. The word city in Greek is polis. And what he's saying to them is this, be good citizens. Now back up, and let me just share the context here. Paul's writing from Roman imprisonment in the heart of Rome. Rome is the city at this time, by the way. And the reason why Paul's in Rome, in the heart of Rome, awaiting trial, Roman trial, is because he's a Roman citizen and he's appealed to his Roman citizenship throughout the end of the book of Acts. You see it, that's how he gets to this place. Not because he's found guilty and they just keep putting him to a higher court, it's because he appealed to his Roman citizenship. So he gets to this place because of that. He's writing from the heart of Rome to Philippi. Philippi is not in Rome, but Philippi is a Roman colony. In fact, they're very proud of their Roman citizenship, so proud of it. They wear Roman clothes, they speak Latin, they embrace all of Roman culture, they consider themselves Romans, even though they've never, many of them have never even visited Rome. And so they've got a citizenship to a place they've never even visited. But Paul isn't telling them, be good citizens of Rome. Remember what the object is there. Be good citizens of, or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, the gospel. And so the citizenship he's talking about is a heavenly citizenship. Don't live like you're citizens of this place. Live like you're citizens of heaven. Later in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, your citizen's not of this place. This isn't your commonwealth. This isn't your country. This isn't who you fight for. You're a citizen of heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior, Christ, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So live your lives in a manner worthy of that you're a citizen of Christ's kingdom. The problem for the Philippians is they'd get so comfortable being Roman citizens they'd forget they're actually a heavenly citizenship and he's talking to them about being a church that's a demonstration of a heavenly kingdom. The problem for us is, and think about us, we live in this American life and this American dream that's painted before us and we are American citizens and proud to be American citizens. Totally understand that. But if you're a Christian, you're a heavenly citizen. This place isn't your home. But the difficulty with that is this place is really comfortable and really convenient. And everybody tells you everything's about you. I was thinking about it this week, and I remembered uh, when my wife and I first moved to Dallas, Texas to go to seminary. We moved to a new city, had never lived there before, weren't sure how we were going to pay for school. God gave us um, some really good jobs while we were there. And I remember in the first couple weeks of my job, I won a trip, all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii. I know you feel bad for me. Know that the Bible says not only to mourn with those who mourn, but rejoice with those who rejoice. And so I won this trip to Hawaii. It was amazing. I didn't know much about what it was going to be like. And uh, we got on a plane uh, to fly there. And I realized well, we were starting to meet some of the other people that were going on this trip. The trip wasn't actually designed for people like me. It was designed for the owners of these companies, the owners of car dealership, owners of builders, companies that had spent like crazy amounts of money on advertising. And it was through an advertising firm. 
And so we get there, and they're talking about gifts that they've received on other trips like this. And I'm like, they're, they're going to give us stuff? Like, this is cool. And so we get there. We go to this five-star resort. There's, like, celebrities staying there and stuff. And my wife and I, we're newly married. We don't have any idea how long this is going to happen. We can't believe it. This is, we're at this place. We come back to our room. They've got gifts on our bed for us. And then somebody made the towels look like animals. They folded them all up, looked like elephants and turtles and all kinds of, like, have you ever seen somebody make balloon animals? They were doing it with our towels. And, and you go to dinner, and they've got, like, celebrities that are at this dinner, and they bring you lobster tail, and you're like, I don't know, I don't really want lobster. Okay, here's the sea bass, Mr. Lear. Oh, that was kind of cool. I'm going to eat half of this. I wonder what the steak is like, you know, and then they bring the steak by, and it's pretty awesome what they're doing. But then you think about when I get back home, nobody's making elephant towels at my house. In fact, nobody's even cleaning the towels unless we clean the towels. I remember we were newly married, and uh, you think about the meals. I remember we, my wife was a nurse with the job that she was doing, and I was selling houses. One day I didn't work, and she had worked a 12-hour shift. She came home, and I said, honey, what are we having for dinner? <laughs> I'm still an idiot, and I was an idiot then. <laughs> she looked back at me and said, whatever you make. And so then I learned at that moment how to cook. And so it wasn't that somebody was bringing me sea bass all the time at my house. Somebody wouldn't bring me lobster tail if I didn't like the sea bass. It's not how it works. But I'm going to tell you something. It was real easy to get used to being there in Hawaii. Real easy to get used to somebody telling me that life is all about me, trying to make all my comforts, all my conveniences become a reality. And think about what happens in, in our lives. We're Christians, but we live in America. And so you're going to leave here today, and you're going to go home, and if you watch basketball or any commercial advertisements or get on your computer, you're going to be told hundreds, maybe thousands of times that you deserve something, you're entitled to something. Pay attention to the messages in the commercials. It's about your comfort, and it's your convenience. And if you just want, and if that didn't satisfy, if the gold version didn't satisfy you, don't worry, we've got a platinum version. And there's a new and improved one. And you just need to try again. And if you just wore, if you just wore these clothes, if you just drove this car, if you were just in this shape, if you just had this kind of house, if you just... And it's an endless pursuit that doesn't end up actually working. But what happens is we hear this message hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. Then we go to church. And some guy stands up in front and reads a verse. If you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. I believe that. But it's all about me. And there's these comforts and these conveniences. And it's really appealing for me to live as Christ and die as gain. But, But it's all about, and I deserve, and I've worked hard, and shouldn't I get some points for doing this? And they don't know what I've done. And... This place is not your home. You have a home that's far better than this place. For you to die and to go to that place, that would be gain. And you should live your life with a hope, like your hope is not in this place, that your hope is in that place. And so no matter what happens here, guess what? It's only temporary, these light and momentary afflictions. But then one day you've got a future hope. That's what motivates us to be able to say, to live as Christ. I'm going to lay it all down. I will give my life up. I will sacrifice. It doesn't matter whose approval. It doesn't matter the achievements. It doesn't matter all that stuff. It's fine. It's not wrong. But if it becomes supreme, I've got a problem. It's the driving force. It's what matters in my life. And so I'll just live for Christ. And if none of that happens, guess what? I get Christ at the end. And the gospel goes forward and lives are changed. And, and I get to be with him. And so when people look at us, outsiders look at us, they should see that. We should be standing as one man, it says. Standing our ground, standing firm. And what he's talking about there is unity. We'll talk more about that next week. But the unity he's talking about here is this. It's not that we're one-mindedness in the sense that we all think the same things. It's a mixed, incredibly diverse group of people in Philippi and here that we're not caught up in who likes what team, what your political views are. 
But the thing that unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're united as a church, and we're going to find out in chapter 4, there's fighting going on in Philippi. Even though this is a, a great church, there's two women that are fighting about stuff. You know what happens in that? Then some people take one side, and some people take the other side. And yeah, you really shouldn't have been. And we start, pride starts to build up. And what we're going to talk about is humility and laying your lives down for the sake of other people. And when, it's all, when we're united in what matters and what's most important, the gospel, the other stuff doesn't matter that much. Lock arms with other churches. Lock arms with other believers. Have different views, different thoughts. You don't agree about everything, but you know what we do agree about? The gospel. And so the gospel unites us. And the world should then look at us and see this thing that unites us together. And then what does it say? Let me read you verses 29 and 30. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, so you're given something that's been granted to you to believe. You've been given belief. You didn't earn it. You didn't do it on your own. He did it. But also to suffer. So there's another gift for you. Keep your gifts. No, it's a blessing. Because when you suffer and you're faithful, guess what? That's a sign that you're a believer. And when you suffer, guess what that does? It gives you another opportunity to encounter Christ, the one who suffered for you. The suffering servant, that's how our faith began, was at the cross, the suffering servant. So to think that we would never suffer is ridiculous. And since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, he speaks to them. And how did it, what do you see? Acts chapter 16, you saw him flogged and beaten, thrown in prison, then he's singing hymns. And he says, and now see that I have. You're going to go through the same stuff, he tells Philipp, the Philippians. If you're faithful, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we live in a place of freedom of religion, totally understand that. Persecution might not look like flogging and imprisonment, but if everybody agrees with you, you know what the Bible says? You're a false prophet. People should disagree with you. Not because of the way you present information, because the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is an offense. You're telling people that they're not good enough, but they're constantly being told. Not only are you so good, you deserve these things. No, you need to base your life on the performance of another, Jesus Christ. And then for you to live will be Christ. What about for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you. That your son, Jesus Christ, did everything we couldn't do. That lived the perfect life, died the death that we needed. God, I pray that we would long for and love him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. And God, will you change our desires? We struggle with sin. We struggle with selfishness. We want to live for ourselves. And God, we need you to break that. We can't do it. There's no steps. There's no process. There's nothing that we can just believe more, feel more, muster up energy for. We need your spirit to work. Help us not to quench your spirit. Forgive us of sin, reconcile us to you, and help us to love you that we would all, I pray everyone that hears these words today would be able to say, for me to live is Christ. And if we could get that blessing of being taken to be with you today, that would be great glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we love you, and I want to give you time out in the lobby, so we're in a little bit early today. Um, to go out there. So if you're a volunteer, go ahead and get out there so you're at the table right now and I'll talk for like two seconds about whatever uh, so you can get out of your aisles. Just kidding. Not really. But giving you a couple seconds to get out there. The rest of us, here's what I'd say. If you already volunteer somewhere at a church, like maybe you serve first service or you serve on some team that's outside of the walls of the church, whatever, um, maybe still stop by some of these tables because it might be time for a change and we totally understand that. Some of you don't know what your gifting is or how God wants to use you. We've got a table out there for that, actually, too, because our goal as a church isn't really just to fill a spot. Somebody's going to step up and serve if there's a need and God wants to do that ministry. It's not really to fill a spot. We want you functioning in your sweet spot, and so we want to walk with you through that process. The table out there is called Assess Me for that. You'll see all kinds of stuff, everything from bridge kids, hospitality team, to working on the communications team, working in the office, whatever gifts you have, administrative gifts, upfront gifts, teaching gifts, encouraging gifts, serving gifts, whatever they are, um, we've got opportunities for you out in the lobby. 
And for some of you, I know that's a great way to get connected. You might be new to this church and uh, not bold enough to want to go to somebody's house for a small group yet. I recognize that happens. This might be a good segue for you. And so check the stuff out that's in the lobby, and we'll see you next week.